0: This
1: is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Your guide on the side.
1: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
0: at
2: DrMattShow.
1: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
2: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
2: BYU Radio.
3: Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson once again filling in for Dr. Matt, who's still away in beautiful St. George. And, uh, you know, I came into the studio today, and it's it's a day of change Not only do we have new locks on the door, we have new buttons on the board. Well, at least for me, anyway, and I don't know if I did something wrong that they have... Okay, green means you're on, red means you're off. I don't know. I thought it was pretty simple before, but maybe I was not doing it correctly. Or maybe it's for Dr. Matt. All I know is that nobody else got these buttons. Hmm. But I guess change is good. Change is good, and... You know, uh, we're also, today on the program, going to be speaking about kindness. And kindness is also very good. who to thunk, right? Our guest is going to be uh, Tara Cousineau, uh, who's going to be talking to us about her new book, The Kindness Cure. And, yeah, I've never understood people that thought maybe being unkind was better than being kind. But you see it on the road all the time on a daily basis. Hopefully you're not one of those people. Becca, you're not one of those people, are you?
4: I'd just like to apologize now <gasps> um, before the truth comes out. What? Actually it's not it's not intentional though, it's kinda of more just, you know, it comes across as being really rude, but I was just, you know, looking at that really funny billboard. They've got some funny ones here.
3: What? So wait, you're a distracted driver.
4: Sometimes, yeah, but not on my phone. But you're not that's dangerous. Like,
3: You're not like cutting people off. And, not on purpose. You know, throwing your fist up in the air at them.
4: Not on purpose.
3: Oh, you just—it's you just know. Sometimes spa- things
4: <laughs> accidentally happen. You and have these
3: spasms? Your arm shoots out, and
4: I feel like it can be misconstrued. Misconstrued, yeah. But... Sure. Okay. Yeah. Maybe
3: that's why people aren't kind because <laughs> there's a, a an element of un- misunderstanding. But we'll find out more about that and how that helps. It can actually help our health and well-being. And uh, I'm really curious to talk to her because really interesting and important topic. When we uh, just here in a few minutes with Tara Cousineau. I think I'm saying that right. Terry will find out for me. Anyway, Terry, speaking of Terry, what else is going on around the country?
5: Relatives of the woman who has been identified as the shooter at YouTube's headquarters Tuesday have claimed they told the police about her hatred of the company and warned them that she might do something. Police said the woman injured three people in the attack with one man still in critical condition before reportedly turning the gun on herself. Her family told journalists about her vendetta against the company, which she believes had uh, suppressed her video posts causing her to lose traffic and revenue her brother told a local abc affiliate that his family reported her missing over the weekend and grew concerned when the police told her that her vehicle had been spotted 30 miles from youtube headquarters Uh, i googled mountain view and it was close to youtube headquarters and she had a problem with youtube the brother said i called that cop again told him there's a reason she went all the way from san diego to there so she might do something. So they didn't do anything. She got killed, and three or four other people got hurt. She was sleeping in her car. They didn't have any reason other than just to tell her to move on. Yeah, There's nothing. They couldn't. I mean, she wasn't breaking any laws, so they just told her to vacate the area, and that's all the interaction they had with her. Mm. And then she walked in, and that's and scary. That yesterday. So, other news: President Trump told reporters Tuesday that he wants troops to guard the U.S. border until a wall has been built. Uh, We have very bad laws for our border. We're going to uh, be doing some things. I've been speaking with General Mattis. Trump said we're going to be doing things militarily until we can have a wall and proper security. We're going to be guarding our border with the military. That's a big step. We really haven't done that before, or certainly not very much before. So not just border patrol, but actual troops. That's what he's saying. Interesting. Now, Mm. uh, President Obama and President Bush both at different times sent the National Guard to the border, but they were there for administrative reasons. They weren't there to police mm. the border. This, I mean, what he's proposing is going down there and having an armed, you know, like armed force at the border—guns, vehicles, those sorts of things. Sounds so, pricey. I and I don't know if they want to do that. <laughs> Someone was saying this morning that the Pentagon's drying up plans, but that might just be a way to kind of stall things until maybe somebody gets distracted by something else. Yeah, sounds about right. Beijing has retaliated against Trump. The Trump administration's plan to hit Chinese products with terrorists by announcing a long list of 106 U.S. products that will have duties hiked, including planes. Cars and soybeans. Beijing's penalties of 25% additional tariffs on U.S. goods equates to a trade value that matches the 50 billion targeted on Trump's list that he put out. That was put out on Tuesday, according to China's Commerce and Finance Ministries. Chemicals, corn products, orange juice, whiskey, beef are among the uh, some of the U.S. products that will be hit by the new tariffs. Earlier, the Chinese government said it strongly condemns and firmly op- opposes Trump's proposed tariffs, calling them. Unilateralistic and protectionist, China's uh, countermeasures will come into effect when the U.S. formally imposes its tariffs. hmm At what point do we call it a trade war? Ooh. i hmm. I saw reports today that says, ooh, it's escalating, but they weren't ready to call it a trade war yet. I'm like, well, we're both raising prices on everything.
3: This makes me think of risk for some reason when
5: you said China, war. China put uh, flamethrowers on the list, so there's a tariff on U.S. flamethrowers. Oh. I didn't know we had a market Dang it. That. Yeah, I know. It's like <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's the one that Elon Musk made that we were talking about a few months back or a few weeks back, but we'll see. Uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller's team has reportedly told uh, the president's attorneys that he is not a criminal target of the probe, but he remains under investigation. According to the Washington Post, Mueller's also uh, told the president's legal team that he is preparing a report about the president's actions while in office and potential obstruction of justice. The special counsel is reportedly seeking to interview Trump as part of the investigation, namely to figure out whether he sought to criminally obstruct in the probe. So he's not. Let's see what it says. He is not a uh, a focus of criminality, but a potential obstruction of justice. Situation, so they don't Sounds have enough. Like... <laughs> they don't have enough uh, to say you're, you know, charged with a criminal crime, but they're like you're a person of interest because we don't know what you did. So when I'm... it came to maybe possible obstruction, if they talk to him and find out that he did obstruct, then he, yeah, you know, then this could escalate to something else. But at the moment, they're still like, we need to talk to you to figure out what you did.
3: Are we just getting bogged down in the terminology and the wording of well, this? It's
5: specific, and you need to do that so they, the, the president's team knows what they're walking into. Oh, sure. And it's just part of the negotiation and the slow drip of this going on for another year. Finally, the, uh, an Austrian man faces a $197 fine for describing police officers as Smurfs in a warning <laughs> about speed traps on Facebook. The Austria press agency reported Tuesday that authorities imposed a fine on a man whose name wasn't released for violating public decency. By His def- name was Papa Smurf. Maybe, yeah. but he, uh, public, he violated public decency by defaming two police officers. The man's post on a Facebook group alerted others to two Smurfs standing with lasers on a local highway. A police officer who was also in the group filed a complaint. The man maintains the term Smurfs was meant as a harmless joke rather than an insult and plans to defend himself in court.
3: Actually, this sounds like the words of Gargamel. Ah, That would be more likely because Papa Smurf would never turn on his own kind. But Gargamel, that unibrowed villain wouldn't put that past him. You know, a lot of this would just be solved if we could all just be a little kinder, which is exactly what we're going to be talking about when we return here on the Matt Townsend Show with our next guest. We're going to be talking about the kindness, the kindness cure when we return. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. You know, usually when we look for healing, we head to the drugstore, we go to the doctor's office, the hospital, even the outdoors. But what about healing in terms of kindness? Well, Tara Cousineau explains in her new book, The Kindness Cure, how the science of compassion can heal our heart and world. She is here with us to share her research. Good morning, uh, Tara, and welcome to the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
3: I was so excited to read about this topic and, uh, and hope to be able to read this book, too. Uh, the, the first thing that caught my mind so interesting is that we apparently are hardwired to care about others.
1: We certainly are. We just seem to forget that basic fact. Um, we definitely have an instinct for compassion and cooperation. We wouldn't have survived if we didn't have it.
3: Yeah, I guess if we were just stepping all over each other the whole way through that we wouldn't be around very long. That's right. (laughs) Um, Another thing you mentioned here is that compassion is essential to our happiness. And I, I wonder if there are people out there that feel like, well, I, you know, I tend to keep to myself and things seem to be working out just fine for me.
1: Well, um, maybe there are some people that feel that way, but I think those are exactly the kind of people I'd like to sit down and have a cup of coffee with, um, and just to kind of shoot the breeze, because I think that we would find that there's there a lot that we have in common as human beings, whether it's like we like to be alone or to be with other people or we care about our families or we want to find meaning and purpose in our lives, right? But we only really know that through connection. And connection with kindness actually amplifies you know, our ability for love and belonging and, um, you know, kind of getting on the same page.
3: Yeah. Tara, you mentioned in here, too, that uh, being kind can dissolve our feelings of fear and indifference. Can we be kind and apathetic at the same time?
1: Uh, that's a good question, and I'm going to say no to that. Um, we can't be, you know, kind, kindness really requires us, you know, my definition is basically that kindness is love in action. It requires effort, and it requires connection, and it requires a caring attitude. So if you harbor a caring attitude, it's very hard to be apathetic. We can be disappointed <laughs> with what happens in the world, but it doesn't mean that we don't care.
3: Yeah. And it's, it's so strange that, you know, you turn on the TV and it's – I wouldn't say anything you see on TV is particularly kind, especially in terms of sitcoms where people are, are constantly putting each other down. And yet we all flock to these shows. We watch them. We consume them on a daily basis. Why is it that it's so prevalent in the media if, you know, somebody, might, somebody watching it might – Think, consider themselves to be a, a kind person. But why is it that we consume this unkindness so much?
1: Well, I think it's because we're really not aware. <laughs> we're not aware of sort of what we're doing or that we're not aware that we're hooked in a way. And I think that one of the things is that there is a um, also um, sort of a, a wiring in, a, in us to kind of um, – uh, glom onto the negative, right? Because we have under sort of our um, emotional radar, this sort of unconscious scanning, um, you know, for danger or harm or that sort of thing. Um, In terms of sitcoms, I think that is really a way for us to kind of numb out and, Mm. you know, forget about our daily lives. And it becomes more of sort of, you know, a drug, you know, it's like an addiction. But we tend to be, you know, have this gravitational pull towards the things that are negative, And we've sort of been conditioned to find sarcasm as entertainment.
3: Yeah. I-, I wonder if highlighting the shortcomings in others makes some people feel better about themselves. But it- anybody who's performed any type of a service knows that the feeling that you get from doing something good for somebody else and uplifting somebody else is far better
1: far better and the research bears that out again and again helping and volunteering is actually really good for your physical health not only your emotional health Um, we have better heart health we live longer (laughs) you know if we could all volunteer consistently a couple hours a week um, I think that we would sort of um, really appreciate our lives and that of others so helping actually really is a good prescription for well-being
3: Interesting, you know we've we've had different guests on the show throughout the years, and a lot of them will say if if doctors would just prescribe me with this with such and such, uh, then I would be more likely to do that. You know you have you hear about doctors prescribing exercise. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if maybe doctors should start prescribing kindness.
1: That they should and actually I'm not alone in that um, uh, Dr. Stephen Post who wrote the foreword for my book has been studying you know helping and generosity for years and he actually had an article last year about sort of you know being good is a really good prescription for help and he sort of summarizes the research and so I was so appreciative when he wrote the foreword to my book but basically um, helping even if you don't want to at first um, has been shown to be a really great health preventative for teenagers for instance We spend so much time telling kids what not to do, you know, because we're trying to prevent um, the highest risk behavior, you know, drinking while driving or unprotected sex and those sorts of things. And so we, we spend our time trying to avoid the negative and we don't spend as much time or more time on how to actually promote the positive through volunteering, through, you know, mentoring and things like that.
3: Interesting, Tara. Let's switch gears here just a little bit. So, do you feel like maybe there is a kindness phobia, or do you feel like there's this mentality that it's it's cool to be unkind or cool to be cruel? I think is what you mentioned in your book.
1: Yes, well, I think that it is, and you know, to kind of circle back to how we sort of are sort of conditioned with sitcoms that are really sarcastic and and putting people down. I think that there is really an amplification of that in our culture, and it's so easy. I mean, you know, in this day and age, we have access to social media and the internet 24-7. We can actually spread bad news really quickly, and we all can also spread good news really quickly. And and, and my estimation is that we're sort of at this inflection point, and we can kind of orient ourselves in either direction. So, you know. If, You know there are a lot of social media companies that are sort of you know under the gun right now for you know really promoting or propagating um, an orientation towards negativity, fake news, and that sort of thing. I actually think that there really is something to this. We can intentionally use our media and our social technologies for the good, um, but that has to actually be well thought out and done on purpose and with heart and with awareness that there are consequences to the kinds of information communication that we
3: put out into the world. Tara, it's interesting that you mentioned social media because I've made a point now whenever I I read some sort of an article that I just know there's going to be negative comments. I make a point to not look down in the comments section because they're always just horrible.
1: They are horrible. (laughs) Oh. oh, I've got my daughter applying to colleges, and she said, Mom, there was this one col- you know, comment that said so-and-so. I said, you cannot read the comments. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot read the comments on anything because you know, somehow they influence us, and we actually have to be much more aware. So part of the, the skill, really, in cultivating more kindness and compassion is that we really first have to start with our own awareness. You know, it's really kind of getting grounded in the present moment, learning actually how to calm ourselves down, because really one of the main things that I propose in the book that kind of stops us from being kind is that we are under a spell. We're under this, this trance of overwhelm, of stress, and of negativity, and we aren't really even aware that we're being sort of pulled by it in a lot of ways, and that we've sort of allowed it to take over our lives, as opposed to learn how to actually recruit our own physiology, our ability to calm ourselves down through breathing, through being in nature, as you mentioned in the beginning, um, really just ways to kind of really cultivate a calmer state of mind that actually helps the brain access the prefrontal cortex and the parts of our brains that really allow us to have wider perspective, um, to be more socially aware <laughs> and those kinds of things. Yeah. So we have to learn how to do that.
3: If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Tara Cousineau, who is a uh, clinical psychologist, and she's also the author of the book The Kindness Cure. Tara, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, wiring in the book, and I wonder... I, I wonder... Uh, we You mentioned social media and how people will bring up all these negative comments. And it seems like maybe we need a little bit of rewiring to the point where, you know, we and we see it on the road, too, where people uh-huh. are just so rude to each other. And for me, I try to think, you know, would I be saying what I'm saying now? Like, if I'm talking about somebody else, would I be saying that if that person were in the room? Or... What if the person that I get angry with that just cut me off in front of me in the car, what if that's my next-door neighbor? You know, I, I, I wouldn't treat my next-door neighbor like that, right? So why would I treat this total stranger like that? I wonder if if we could just do a little bit of rewiring like that.
1: Well, I always say that we all could use a little remedial training and empathy. It seems to stop at the third grade. And um, we... There is a retraining, and that's sort of what I get to at the second part of my book where I talk about the caring brain. And there's a notion in the neurosciences called um, positive neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is basically the ability of your brain to change based on experience, right, any kind of experience, positive or negative. But we could purposely train our brains to take in the good, to appreciate, to calm ourselves down. It takes practice. And so, you know, one of the things that I write about is that kindness takes effort. And the effort is so worth it because we can lay down sort of new neural wiring um, to be more open hearted, if you will, to cultivate generosity and gratitude, to practice kindness, because we know from the literature and the sciences that it actually, you know, it it produces positive emotions, and positive emotions are also contagious. Um, So we can insert this into how we live our daily lives, and it does take practice, like exercise, like having a healthy diet, like actually having a healthy media diet. This all takes awareness and practice to do, but the payoff is really good.
3: Yeah, it makes me think of the the movie Groundhog Day where he's in this <laughs> continual time loop and you know, he uh it takes him there are different theories on how long he's in this loop, but you know, one theory is that he's there for over 30 years and like you said it takes practice <laughs> to get to the to the person that you want to be or that you need to be. And I'm curious to know, how do we how do we first unleash this capacity for kindness in ourselves? And then, after that how do we how do we then unleash this capacity in others?
1: right well, um with ourselves, one of the things that um, i do a lot of in my work as a professional, you know, as a psychologist, is to help people cultivate self-compassion. Because when you start to dig under the layers, we are not very kind to ourselves. Most of us have very loud inner critics, you know, that tell us that we're not doing things right, that we're not good enough, that we're not smart enough, we're not rich enough, we're not whatever enough, right? And that voice um, can just kind of circle back over and over again. It can be louder on certain days than other days, right? And we actually, just like we're watching sort of sarcastic comedy, we're not actually watching that we're doing this in our own minds. (laughs) Mm. So a lot of self-compassion is really kind of learning how to be mindful. Even, you know, a few minutes of meditation, checking in a couple minutes every day, just observing what's happening in your mind, and then learning how to be a little bit kinder to yourself, as if you would befriend somebody, like you said, you know, like, what if that's my neighbor driving in the car? Well, guess what? Guess who's in your mind? Well, they're just really aspects of yourself, usually smaller parts, younger parts, wounded parts, rejected parts. And we actually need to identify them and just say, you know what, like, Tara, it's going to be okay. Um... I'm not going to really flub up on this interview. I mean, how bad can I go with kindness, really, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: internal self-talk, right? Yeah. And we all need to do that. And when we do that, we can just um, have a little bit of relief, if you will, and, we can, and, and just have a more generous perspective on our own lives that, you know, we make mistakes, you yeah. know, we can have regrets. It is life. That's so
3: too. so starting with ourselves in terms of you know seeing ourselves with with value and and saying you know I'm I'm a good person I I have value that's a good first step what are some other things that people can do I mean especially people that maybe they are uh, they don't like getting out they don't like talking to people how do you how do you help somebody like that to get on this path toward kindness not that they're unkind but they're just they don't maybe like people or they don't like talking to people?
1: Well, you know, I think, um, you know, you might be talking more of like an introverted personality sure. or um, that sort of thing. And I think, you know, that's um, you know, kind of 50-50 split in the world, you know, being introverted or extroverted or somewhere on the continuum. But really, um, kindness is about connecting. And it doesn't have to be with the whole world. It doesn't have to be with your whole neighborhood. But, you know, connecting with another person or finding, your, you know, this is where I'm going to go back to sort of the volunteering um, or mentoring or helping out in some ways, having, having those kinds of connections, we all actually need those in some ways. And for some people, it's learning the skill, right, of connecting. Um, loneliness is actually a real problem in the United States, and the health consequences of loneliness and being alone are up there with the consequences for smoking, for instance. So part of it is, um, you know, we need to, as communities, um, be more mindful and aware and um, reconnect kind of like we did in in past generations. You know, people used to go down to the town hall and square dance, for goodness sake. You know, we don't really actually do those kinds of things as much anymore.
3: Yeah. Um, Tara, I'm curious. So just in closing here, what are some things that we can do today today? No matter how small they are, what are some things that we can do today to help us get on this path that we need to to be so that we can have that better health, we can can have better connections with people?
1: Well, I think the first thing is that, you know, when we wake up in the morning is that we don't grab our phones or look at the news, is that instead we say, how can I bring kindness into my day? How can I um, bring generosity? What's one thing that I can do? Just one thing. You know, just start with one thing, and the other thing is the gig given our conversation is to kind of. Notice our first reactions, right? You know, if we're disappointed or scared or worried, that is a natural human response. We really can't help that. But we can help our second response or our third response. And so we tend to add suffering to our own sort of negative experiences as opposed to kind of saying, okay, I'm anxious right now. What can I do? I can take some deep breaths. I can call a friend. I can reach out. So I think a lot of it is learning how to orient ourselves to um, that the world is a kinder place, to look for kindness, to take in the good, to catch ourselves when we get caught into the negativity loop. A lot of this has to do with awareness as the first step, and often that's with taking a deep breath.
3: You've inspired me, Tara, and you've made me think of an exercise that worked for me personally. I remember when I was back in college, I I don't know why I came up with this goal, but one day I just woke up and decided, you know what, I'm going to say hello to 100 people. <laughs> yeah. And I was shocked that I was able to get through those 100 people even before I made it to my first class. And I was also surprised at some of the reactions that I got. I think a lot of people and this is this is back before people buried their faces in cell phones everywhere they went. But uh, I was surprised at some of the reactions I got. There were people that that smiled and said hello back. There were people that were just shocked that i was saying hello to them and it was one of the easiest things that i did but it just just took that little that little nudge that little stepping outside of my comfort zone to to try to be kind to other people
1: exactly i mean that's a really good tip for your listeners is say hello open doors without necessarily the expectation of getting something in return sure you're doing it for the sake of doing it right yeah
3: yeah. And, you know, just to, to get outside of of my own little world and, and open it up to other people, like you said.
1: Right. And one other thing I'd like to say about what you did is that I bet that you influenced at least three other people. You know, there's this three degrees of influence rule. And when we insert a certain kind of idea or behavior into a social network, whether that's online or online, it spreads out you know, to three people, like three degrees. And so I like to know, you know, I just remind myself, like, if I do something kind or good or generous, that is most likely going to influence that person to pay it forward in some way. And that is really powerful.
3: Yeah. And like you said, you you're not doing it for your own gratification. You may never see the sequel to that story, but that's right. Yeah. That's not why you do it. Well, Tara, we really appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show. Her name is Tara Cousineau, and she is the author of the book The Kindness Cure. She's also a clinical psychologist, a meditation teacher, a well-being researcher, and social entrepreneur. And we've really enjoyed her time here on the Matt Townsend Show. When we return, we're going to do a little Coach's Corner, or rather we're going to replay a Coach's Corner with uh, Dr. Matt Townsend. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show.
5: coach would have put me in fourth quarter we'd have been state champions because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner
2: play all
3: play
6: ball, friends you know we've all been kind of going on this roller coaster uh with every hurricane that comes through from irma to maria and then the shootings in las vegas a lot of pressure on all of us and and then other issues with political unrest with the the kneeling situation uh, with our NFL athletes, people are upside down and a lot of us just don't know where, where we belong, where we fit. And so one of the things I wanted to work on uh, in our little coaching corner today is to talk about um, a, f- a few truths about being a human being that that life can teach us okay so and and we've seen them in the disasters there's been incredible story after story so here's four basic truths that i want to make sure we all are very clear of number one truth about being a human being is we can all handle more than we think we can Uh, most of us would be afraid to have to go through a scenario like uh, the hurricane that puerto rico's had to go through um, and and it, you know it'd be one thing to be afraid that you might die in it. It's another thing like could you make it through the hurricane, but then have to rebuild your entire home, lose all of your possessions? And I hear a lot of people say, "Oh, I could never do that," or "I could never, uh, I could never get through the the shooting that that, uh, that we saw in Las Vegas." Um, that would just be too much for me. That would just be too traumatic. And uh, I think what we're finding out is human resiliency is is incalculable. You can't estimate uh, your ability to do it. But the reality is, it's hard. Um, it's hard to actually think ahead to what you could handle, because we don't tend to measure forward how well we do anything. <laughs> Most of us don't predict very well, uh, who we really are and what we do. So the reality is, if you were forced into any of those situations, and you had to live it in the moment, in the present, you, you would, you would be able to handle it. And, you'd have no other choice, right? And you wouldn't try to handle it all in one lump sum. You would handle it literally one minute at a time. And as you handle it one minute at a time, you seemingly are more able to handle it, right? Uh, In the shootings, they didn't need to handle the whole situation. They needed to handle that first second, then the second second, then the third second, then the fourth second, and you do whatever you can do in the moment. So one of the rules about a human uh, that I think all of us need to remember is – we can handle more, and um, we can handle anything that's going on. Even when you feel like you're at the brink and you can't, you got to trust in your ability to make it through some of these difficult times. And just know, and and just trust that if you were, if it was thrust upon you, you would step up and you would handle it. Whether a natural disaster, a tragedy in your life, the loss of somebody you care about. It's a real basic human ability. Another is that needing help is what makes us human. A lot of us are really afraid of being vulnerable, and it might go back to the age-old issues of uh, – I mean, I, the, the story I always refer to is Adam and Eve, right? They were naked, and they noticed their nakedness right after they partook of the fruit. They noticed the nakedness. And that nakedness in my world is – another name for that is vulnerable, and as human beings, we hate being vulnerable, <laughs> We hate it, which is why all of these tragedies are so difficult for us, because we don't like the idea of knowing that we're so vulnerable. We'd like to pretend like we're not. So we tend to put up facades. We tend to, you know, judge others. We tend to do all of these other things that make us seem stronger than we are. But it all is torn away from us when a hurricane goes over and you're absolutely vulnerable and you have nothing but the clothes on your back. And um, then you realize, ah, now I'm needy. Now I need something. But one rule and one thing I've learned through just watching some of these tragedies is the, the crazy reality that we are all needy. We are all one disaster away from, from really understanding how basic we are. So maybe it would be easier for a lot of us if we started spending more time accepting the fact that you're vulnerable and even sharing your vulnerability with other people. Talk to people and that might be a really healthy thing to be doing after uh, you look at the the stories about the shootings. Share how vulnerable you feel and find somebody, a significant other, somebody you care about that you could actually open up and share your vulnerable um, side with so that – being vulnerable isn't such a isn't such a you know a difficult position for you. Another example of uh, humanity being taught through life are the fact that people's hearts are so inherently good. Story after story in the disaster relief uh, that you heard all through Houston, that you heard in Florida, that you heard throughout the the, uh, the Caribbean. People are good, and I think in the end, we like to always talk about the titillating, exciting story of the one who causes so much damage, the shooter, for example. But in reality, there were hundreds if not thousands of ex- good examples of good people doing good things. In the end, humans, humans are good. We're inherently good. When we're pushed to our – our, our, our hardest points, a lot of good will appear because that is, I think, what, what truly exists. And if you don't believe me, all you need to do is go read the stories about uh, the heroes there. And last but not least, one of the greatest lessons I think we all need to remember is the simple idea that we are going to succeed or fail together. If you're not learning that lesson through all of the d- disasters and the tragedies you're seeing in the news, then, you're, then you need to pay attention. We are going to fail or succeed together. Gun control or whatever the gun issues are going to become, we are going to succeed or fail on that issue together. Healthcare, we're going to succeed or fail together. We're, we are going to suffer this together because we are incredibly connected and you're never going to separate the connection. Every one of us. Um, suffer when people around us are suffering. And you may not feel like you're suffering, but if you give it another week, that suffering will eventually make it to your uh, doorstep. So if we can't get together, then we're going to have to do it alone. And when you do it alone, you're going to pay a price because eventually you're going to see you can't do it by yourself. So let's be careful. And let's also remember, humans, we've been at this a long time, and uh, we're, we're, we're pretty good at it, actually whether you whether you remember all the lessons or not we'll continue the journey folks remember the goal of the show is to help you be the good in the world.
3: Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, a while back, Dr. Matt spoke with Heather Johnson, who's an adjunct uh, faculty member at BYU. For uh, She's been doing that for nearly 10 years. She's passionate about teaching students the principles behind successful families and the importance of family spending time together. And uh, a while back, Dr. Matt started his interview with her by asking her to tell us how she started doing research on families.
7: What happens is there's a great article in the New York Times that comes out back in March, and Emory University, some psychologists there were commissioned to look at dysfunctional families. So they get this commission, and they're like, ah, you know what? I don't really want to look at dysfunction. Right. Instead, let's look at what makes a family successful.
6: Functional families.
7: Fantastic, right? Let's go the other direction and – Put a positive spin on this. So they start looking at these families and they find out that families who are most successful have a strong family narrative. Mm. Super cool. So we'll talk about what that means. But really, they're arguing now that this could be the single greatest predictor of children's emotional health and happiness. The single greatest. That's a huge claim. That is a huge a claim. claim. So right?
6: of all things that could improve a child's success rate, right. a narrative. A
7: family narrative. So family narrative is simply the stories we tell our children about our families. Huh. That's all we're looking at. Very simple, very easy. Well, okay, right? but hold
6: on. But like, if I'm like, okay, so grandpa, when he went to prison, right? that's a different narrative.
7: But it's still about your family.
6: Oh, interesting. So just making them connected to their family through narrative.
7: So let's do benefits first so we understand kind of where this comes from. The benefits, again, are monumental. The first one is, and the biggest is that it connects our children to a greater body of people. They are no longer alone. They're not fighting the fight alone. They're not going through a random Tuesday alone. They have this connection to people that are much bigger than them. That's cool. And it can go through generations and generations. Now, once we have this connection, it forms what we like to call an identity. It gives them their own their identity and builds it upon these relationships. Now, I think about identity, especially in our family. I come from a long line of baseball players, which means our family narrative is filled with a lot of baseball stories. Yeah,
6: athletes, yeah.
7: Now, to explain how this works, I could go play baseball in high school or softball and have a really bad day. I could strike out, you know, five times, go 0 for 5, bad day at the plate, and I can come home, and because of this identity and stories... I have people around me who know exactly what it's like to strike out five Interesting. times. Interesting, yeah, game, right? that's great. So there's someone there to say it, whether it's okay or let's go practice or let's you know figure out what's going. Let's work through it. Now at the same time, I could go to that to the baseball field and I could have a great day. I could go five for five. You know, I could have game winning catch in center field, whatever it might be. Yeah. And I come home, and not only do I have people around me who share that and can help me understand and feel good about it, but I've got stories of a grandfather. And a great grandfather and their wives who supported them who all then build into my identity. Yeah. Right. So we're connected to a lot more than just ourselves. And we feel understood and we feel accepted. Now, one of the biggest reasons kids are going to start making choices that we don't necessarily approve of is because they don't feel accepted in any group, let alone in their family, So they're out
6: trying to fit find. into a group or find a group. That's exactly but you're, right. th- So the family narrative just helps create the context for the fact that they fit. They belong to this group. That's exactly inherently. right. Inherently. They
7: know where they belong. That's exactly right. A couple other huge benefits that the research at Emory University found, they also found out that families uh, who have a strong family narrative, their children have higher self-esteem. Wow. They're better able to tackle challenges that come their way. They have, or feel that they have a greater sense of control over their lives. They're more resilient. I mean, think about those benefits. Those are monumental yeah. things for getting kids through not just tough years like junior high and high school, but into adulthood. We need those things.
6: We had Bronco and Holly Mendenhall on the show. So, what do you do though if your family narrative is football? Sure. But you're the kid that's not the football player. Some of Bronco's kids are more like artists. They're they're not necessarily football players or athletes. They like football, but they'd rather do art.
7: Right, and that's okay. What you're going to do is you're going to recognize that like that family narrative fit for us. Right. There were some other things, though, that fit better for my brothers that didn't necessarily fit for me. And so you work through until you find a family narrative that will fit the entire family. But understand that this narrative is a lot bigger than just who's living right now Mm -hmm. and who lives in our home. So a successful family narrative is what's called an oscillating narrative. An oscillating narrative looks at the ups and the downs, or the goods and the bads, not just the bads. So we don't want to have conversations with our kids that only say, man, your grandpa was amazing, your mom's amazing, everybody's amazing, because that's not true, right? Right. And we don't want to have it the other way, where all we do is talk about all the crud and Uh hardships that we've dealt with for the last 100 years. We're not doing that either. Because
6: my narrative would have been, uh, we don't do math. We're Townsends. (laughs) Townsends don't do math. They don't do math, right? But but so you want the good and the bad. That's actually really cool, too, because... Some of the bad actually might be things that are – I have a client that their whole family has anxiety. Right. So part of the bad, I guess, is that we have anxiety, but they also have the stories of conquering it or mastering it. So we're a family that might tend to be a little more anxious. Sure. And we still can make the best of our world.
7: Absolutely. And so you touch on the exact point of the oscillating narrative. The key then is bigger than the ups and the downs. It's then making sure that we make the point that – through the ups and downs, this family still stayed strong. That is cool. Or that individual mm-hmm. still made it through. And so just like you're saying, we want to make sure we hit both you know, sides yeah. of the spectrum. But that's the key. It's that we can do it and we have. Your great-grandpa did it. It was hard, yeah. but he got through it. Or this family, you know, 200 years, whatever it might be, tell those stories.
6: That's huge because it's that's the key, I guess, to resiliency. So right. you're teaching your kids right. this is a resilient tool. That's actually coming from your history, your heritage. Absolutely. And it also says you're anchored. So you don't need to float away and go disappear and not become something. You're going to just add to everyone else's legacy. That's
7: exactly right. And this legacy is also going to buoy you up.
6: I love this. And so
7: that's what they draw on. See, not so weird, This right? is a
6: narrative. yeah. This why is good stuff. We need to make it like superhero <laughs> story, but it's really not. It's also superhuman. You're it is. You're just humans.
7: It's us. But this now, is
6: our context of all of our family.
7: Right. And the next question oftentimes parents will ask me is they'll say, wait a second, though. Do these stories have to be true and accurate? Oh, yeah. Because we've all heard the stories, right? Yeah. Our, you know, great aunt, somebody tells us a story and then we hear it from our dad and he's right. like that. That's not what happened. So we hear that. Now, the great thing is they don't necessarily have to be 100% accurate. Now, we are not suggesting you make stuff up. That's what we're talking about. Did you
6: hear how grandpa (laughs) uh, stopped the Civil War? Right, yeah. That's amazing.
7: We're not going that far. But as far as accuracy goes, what happens is when we tell these stories, we're usually telling them to a family member because they're struggling in some way or need some help. And so we modify the story to fit their situation. Oh, cool. That is perfectly okay, yeah, and that's okay if that's the narrative that's passed on you know we're We're so quick to say, well, maybe I shouldn't say it because I don't really know if he was ten or twelve. Well, ten or twelve doesn't matter it's mm-hmm. It's the story about honesty in school and making the right decision.
3: That was an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Heather ann Johnson. she's one of our frequent contributors here on the show. We're going to catch another portion of that interview coming up later on the show. But uh, coming up next, we've got BBC News. We will continue the discussion and the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
2: Your guide on the side.
1: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at
2: Dr. Matt Show. Call the show
1: at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
2: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
1: Dr. Matt Townsend.
3: Now
7: on BYU Radio.
3: BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. We've also got Becca Hurley, who's running the board for us, and adding a little color commentary, as well as Terry South, our wonderful producer. And we have a fantastic show ahead for you today. We just finished uh, speaking with our last guest about how we need to be more kind and how being kinder can help our health. It can help us reconnect with how we're actually wired. We're actually wired to be compassionate, which makes sense because we probably wouldn't uh, be where we are in the food chain if we just were constantly stepping over each other and and trying to bring each other down. But uh, it's interesting because it made me rethink some of the shows that I watch. Not that I watch horrible shows or anything, but if you just look what's offered on TV – there are a lot of programs where the the main point of the show is to bring other people down, and that's not being kind, right? And yet we eat it up.
4: Yeah, you with got a that giant laugh spoon. Track. You know, it always seems funny, and then no one's actually hurt.
3: Right? It's rare that you see a sitcom where the focus isn't to bring other people down. You know, maybe I I, tr- I was trying to think of one. I was racking my brain to try to come up with one. And maybe, uh, maybe, and I'm not saying I recommend this show or anything, but maybe Third Rock from the Sun, where they're all aliens. And so, you know, they, they take everything literally. So they're not, uh, they don't really have guile, I guess. Interesting. Um, coming up on the program, we're actually going to be speaking about cohabitation and families and what effect that has on your family. Uh, also another Interesting interview, uh, and then of course later on in the program we'll be speaking with our good friends Spencer and Jerem, and we'll also be revisiting an interview that Dr. Matt did about how our kids need to play outside, which is something we tried to do yesterday because it was our one good weather day for like a week and a half, and my daughter was so disappointed because we we set put together this this picnic she spread it all out. She got a blanket. She set up all these games, brought out all these toys and chalk and set up these chairs. And she was absolutely devastated when we didn't stay out there very long because she had put forth all this effort. So we probably could have done a little better job receiving that gift that she gave us, but we get more and more chances as parents, right? Dr. Matt would tell us that there's no... There's no handbook, right? We uh, we're all just trying to figure things out altogether. Actually, there are plenty of handbooks for parenting, but he, he whenever he says it, he's saying it in the context of there's there's no handbook for life. But again, I would argue that there's there no are probably way. a lot of handbooks that. Are, but you know, all these people that are putting these handbooks forward are they're just making it up and guessing as they go along and seeing what sticks. Right?
4: Not perfect parents.
3: Right. None of us are perfect, but we do what we can, right? So, Becca, we don't know too much about you. Other, you know, Dr. Matt mentioned that you come from a clowning family. Oh, yeah. You're in a comedy group here at BYU. Yeah. What else would you have us know about you?
4: Oh, man. Let's see. Trying to think like interesting facts. Uh...
3: I think I just listed two interesting facts about you.
4: <laughs> okay, yeah, that's that's pretty. Well, I I like music. I yes. play uh, mediocre levels of a lot of instruments: saxophone, bassoon. Really? Yeah, I can. I've got like a really great goose impression on the bassoon. Um, yeah, piano, <laughs> kazoo, harmonica, you name it, I can. I can hurt your ears with it.
3: Wow. I've seen some mediocre bands. You weren't playing in any of them, were you? All of them. Oh, wow. I'll look harder next time. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting how a lot of bands, they can't play well live. They sound great on the album, but then you go see them live and it's like, ooh, I kind of just want to go home and listen to the CD instead.
5: Oh, uh, Yeah.
3: Anyway, Terry South is here. He's going to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up?
5: Thousands of teachers rallied Tuesday at Oklahoma's state capitol for the second day of their walkout, demanding increased salaries, state funding for schools. Teachers want an additional $150 million in school funding after a 16% pay increase from legislators last week failed to meet their full demands. Oklahoma teachers have an average salary of around $42,000 a year. U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics shows uh, that put them 48th place in av- on average U.S. classroom teacher salary. Wow. 50, obviously. 48th Lawma- place. Yeah, lawmakers say that they won't budge because they've already granted an additional $50 million in school funding. The stalemate is poised to continue after Oklahoma House adjourned Tuesday without taking up the Senate-approved revenue-raising measures. One representative vowed not to vote on any more funding efforts because of the strike. Teachers are striking this morning, marching on the Capitol once again, so it continues. That's tough, because how else do you make your voice heard? Yeah. Well, what's gonna what they saw in West Virginia, as they held their ground and then the government buckled... We'll just hold their ground and see yeah, what happens. Yeah. See wow. we'll see how it goes. So several California lawmakers proposed legislation Tuesday that would significantly restrict when officers can open fire according to the Associated Press. The proposed measure would change the standard from reasonable force to necessary force, meaning cops would only be able to open fire if there are no other reasonable alternatives to u- to the use of deadly force explains uh, Lizzie uh, Buchan, a uh, legislative advocate for the American Civil Liberties Union. The goal of the legislation is to encourage police officers to de-escalate confrontations and use non-lethal force, according to a spokesperson for one of the bill's co-authors. Some members of law enforcement have called the proposed legislation irresponsible and unworkable. Uh, They've insisted police already work to defuse such situations and only use guns at last resort. The proposal would subject police officers who don't follow the new rules to discipline or firing, sometimes even criminal charges. This all stemming from the uh, situation in Sacramento where the unarmed man was shot in his grandparents' backyard. And he had a cell phone in his hand and and all that. So I, I don't know how this works because it kind of needs to be up to the cops and sort are the yeah. ones putting their lives on the line to make that judgment and when you start you know giving you definitions of what reasonable force and necessary force and you got to make yeah. another judgment call but sometimes you're like why didn't they use a taser why did they have to pull a gun right there Well, you, you saw know?
3: did you see that device that matt uh talked about last week on the show where the, it's like a basically like the size of a ping pong ball Hmm. so it's not going to penetrate but it's going to hurt
5: like heck right well they have beanbag guns things of that nature and they'll take you off your feet but this one
3: it's just a device you put on a regular on your normal firearm
5: right it looked pretty interesting yeah so there (laughs) people have thought up ideas but i don't know it's a tough situation because you're putting your life on the line as a police officer at some point you have to make a decision Mm-hmm. And that moment is what we're trying to legislate, and that becomes becomes difficult. Other news, uh, four crew members are presumed dead after a Marine helicopter crashed in Southern California. The helicopter went down around 2.30 p.m. Tuesday in the vicinity of El Centro, close to the Mexican border. Officials have not yet named the victims or said whether all were Marines, but confirmed the crash took place during a routine mission. The helicopter was reportedly with the third Marine aircraft wing out of Miramar Air Station in San Diego. And is believed to be the worst uh, and deadliest crash of a marine aircraft since July of 2017. Oh. So that story will will continue. Yeah. Uh, And finally, a man was swallowed up by an escalator at an underground station in Istanbul, Turkey, when a massive gaping hole opened up beneath his feet. He had only stepped onto the moving stairs seconds earlier but suddenly found himself gripping onto the handrail. Terrifying video uh, captured at the moment. The man swings wildly as the escalator malfunctions, but is eventually unable to hold on. He desperately or disappears into the dark gap left behind after the escalator collapsed. It shows the broken escalator not moving, with crowds of people choosing to walk down the steps instead. After the man lost his grip, he, pummel- he, he plummeted through the escalator hole and was reportedly trapped under the metal stairs for over an hour. Oh! He was rescued by firefighters. He was taken to the hospital by ambulance with minor injuries. Maintenance workers had reportedly put up a warning sign near the broken escalator before the accident occurred, but it failed to prevent anyone from actually using it.
3: Okay, can I just tell you how many people this is their nightmare oh yeah not not that you'll fall down a hole in an escalator but that your clothes will get caught mm-hmm. and you'll your just get dragged yeah. under. this yeah. is terrifying yeah. they were telling people not to wear crocs i remember when that was the thing where people were getting stuck in the escalator because of crocs
5: yeah so this one oh. was was broken but for some reason people just didn't see the sign walked in and this is the guy that fell through well you would think oh, they would have
4: turned the escalator off right yeah, yeah.
5: Oh, they Maybe they were testing it, it or something. I'm not oh, sure. God. The key is you put a person at the front, the top and bottom, and just you know keep people off. But they didn't do that.
3: Oh, I thought you were going to say just send somebody up the escalator no, no, no. in front you of you. Gotta put Can a, you got to test that out for you me. You put first? a worker out there That's to tell people. If you don't just
5: put a sign. People move signs out of the way and keep going. So wow. But yeah, he didn't. Minor injuries, but you know, scared because you fell through the escalator, basically into the basement.
3: I thought you were going in the direction of he got sucked under the escalator, and that's that just sends chills down my spine. Ooh. It's like nails on a chalkboard. Well, I'm glad that he's okay. Thank goodness. Could have been a lot worse. But, uh, yeah, look for the signs, people. All signs point to gaping holes in escalators, right? I think there's a saying like that. So I'm going to write that down. My grandma always told me What's that. That's going on the quote board. When we return, we're going to be speaking about how cohabitation affects families here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. Living together outside of marriage has become one of the more common ways to start a family in the U.S. and the rest of the world. In fact, 40% of births in the U.S. now occur outside of marriage. And as some scholars believe, family stability is more important than marriage when it comes to the well-being of children. But recent evidence has shown that marriage itself is strongly associated with family stability. Here to speak with us today about cohabitation and marriage is Dr. Lori DeRose, a sociologist at the University of Maryland. Uh, Dr. DeRose, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you, Jeff. So I'm really interested in this topic, and I'm curious to know, just right off the bat, I'm going to come right out of the gate with this question, how does cohabitation affect family stability versus marriage?
8: There's actually a pretty simple answer to that question, in that cohabitation is less stable than marriage. I mean, if, if you're concerned about family stability, you'd like to believe that cohabitations with children are more stable than cohabitations without children, which they are but they're still not as stable as marriages with children.
3: Is it the the lack of commitment? Like, we're not willing to go all the way to getting married, so we're not committed to this uh, this family relationship?
8: That's definitely at least a piece of it. Um, Dr. Brianna Pirelli-Harris has done work actually doing focus groups across Europe to ask people what cohabitation means, you know, because... The idea that it's that cohabitation is uncommitted doesn't have to be universal. So she's basically talked to people about what cohabitation means, and she's found lots and lots of differences across different European countries. But the one constant is the one you just pointed to, Jeff, which is that, in general, it's a less committed relationship. It, marriage is universally viewed as a more committed relationship, and that's not a shocking finding at all. Right, yeah. That, it's just that until you ask the question carefully, you don't know the answer. You only assume the answer. Sure. And she's asked it carefully.
3: You know, I remember seeing, I, I rarely watch, you know, these entertainment shows like Entertainment Tonight or, or Extra, things like that. But uh, I remember there was somebody talking about a, a celebrity couple that was getting engaged. And they said, like, getting engaged is like the new, okay, now we're, now we're dating you know, and getting married is like the new getting engaged. I'm curious to know. We we shared some statistics at the beginning about cohabitation. As cohabitation is becoming more and more common, is it is it also becoming more like marriage?
8: Um, that's a tougher question to answer because, on the one hand, yes, as it's becoming more common, it's becoming more like marriage in that the people who choose to cohabit are no longer as different from the people who choose to marry than than they were in previous eras where it was an avant-garde kind of unusual thing to do. Um, and that's part of what makes understanding the actual effects of cohabitation tricky, because if cohabitation is rare, the people that are cohabiting are people that are unusual. But it also swings back the other way when cohabitation becomes so common that the folks who marry, or I should say who directly marry, that's that's the new term that gets used in the literature now, direct marriage, which means getting married without cohabiting first. I find the term actually slightly amusing that we have to talk (laughs) about direct marriage because we have to set it apart from marriage preceded by cohabitation because most long-run relationships in the United States and in Europe start in cohabitation and a lot of cohabitations fail and never proceed to marriage but the bulk of marriages were preceded by cohabitation so it's now the normative way to start a long-term relationship
0: Interesting.
8: Um, yeah, so getting back to what you what you asked about um about the, well, what I was answering about the people who select into cohabitation, it swings back the other way. When direct marriage becomes uncommon, the folks who do directly marry are the unusual ones. They're the ones that view marriage as more sacred or more permanent or just basically treat it with a seriousness and a, um, well, they, they keep the, barriers up guarding marriage in a way that people who cohabit first.
3: So. Yeah. You, you kind of alluded to this, but are, are there any statistics or do you have any numbers about the, the success rate of these families that either start out uh, cohabiting without marriage or who never marry and how successful they are?
8: Um, again, it's a little bit of a complicated question, but yes, we do have statistics on it. There's work on adults that shows that whether you cohabit first or directly marry, doesn't have a great deal of effect on your divorce rate when cohabitation is kind of around 50% of the population when that happens first. But what we did for the 2017 World Family Map Report was switch who we were focusing on. We said, okay, let's not look at it from the perspective of adults. Let's look at it from the perspective of of children. The adults who marry after cohabiting have definitely made a decision to enter into a marriage. What about kids? Unfortunately, not every child born in either cohabitation or marriage was a deliberate decision in the same way that, you know, actually getting a marriage license and getting married is, you have to do something volitional yeah about it. So we looked at children because we were interested in kids' stability. So we didn't start the clock... At the beginning of the union and we didn't start the clock at the beginning of the marriage we started the clock when the kid was born and we found that across the united states and 16 european countries that your kids were about twice as likely to experience a parental split by age 12. oh
0: my goodness
8: the parents were cohabiting at birth and a lot of those were kids whose parents married yeah Uh, but some of them weren't obviously and some of the marriages failed and some of the cohabitations failed before they became marriages.
3: So I've noticed that the longer I'm married and the older my kids get, I, I know that they can pick up when things are not always hunky-dory around the house. You know, when when, there's, when we're stressed, it seems like they get a little more stressed or that they can sense that mom and dad don't really have things under control right now. When you When you have these relationships that are in turmoil, where the the, the parents or the, the cohabitors are are not gelling, they're not getting along, what is going on in the minds of these of these kids when their parents are when they don't have things under control?
8: you've asked me a question that I'm less qualified to answer, because <laughs> <laughs> I look at this data on relationship duration that doesn't tell me really anything about relationship quality. Um, but, you know, you said you sort of answered your own question by saying kids can tell when something is wrong. But, of course, there's a difference between something wrong means we quit and something wrong means that we work it out.
3: Yeah. Do you notice a difference in the data between uh, cohabitors in the United States versus other parts of the world, like Europe?
8: Um, Again, yes and no. Um, The United States is one of the countries that has the biggest, one of the bigger differences between cohabitants um, and, and, and marrieds in terms of their children's stability. But it's not an outlier. The UK is also in the same range, and some of the countries that you would expect to maybe be a little more different just because their family systems are more different, like Sweden, um, that's notoriously known for cohabitation being very stable. Cohabitants in Sweden actually have longer union durations than married folks in the
3: United States. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Um, How do you explain that?
8: um, That the differences... Across countries are sometimes bigger than the differences between groups within countries. So much more simply, the United States has really unstable unions, period. Yeah. We have a lot of marriage. We have a lot of divorce. We have a lot of cohabitation. We have a lot of cohabitation dissolution. We're basically bad on both fronts.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We're speaking with Laurie uh, DeRose, who's a sociologist at the University of Maryland, and uh, Laurie, let's, let's bring it back to the kids. Let's bring the focus back to the kids because a lot of people would, would agree that the kids are the ones that are the victims in these situations where things don't always turn out so well. So what – Let me get to my question here. What what are the negative outcomes in these relationships? What are the negative outcome for the kids? What what do we see over time as these kids deal with some of those staggering uh, statistics that you mentioned earlier?
8: Some of it varies a little bit between boys and girls. But um, in general, academic performance is worse when kids go through a lot of um, parental union transitions or sometimes even one parental union transition, you know, just a divorce or a disillusion without a repartnering. Um, But boys are more likely to um, engage in substance abuse and um, violent behavior. Girls are more likely to um, have an adolescent pregnancy. Um, I believe they're also more likely to be depressed so the um the academic um consequences are more similar between boys and girls but the some of the other behavioral consequences differ.
3: Yeah. So what would you tell a couple who they are not married but they are interested in having a stable family relationship? Are there any what what could they do to increase their success rate? And then, same question, but with a married couple.
8: I think I understood the first question better than the second. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, getting married is no magic bullet. It doesn't make your relationship perfect, but if you volitionally enter into a relationship and you have the social signaling to the rest of the world, yes, we are a couple, and... You have the internal pressure that comes from that. I mean, we sometimes talk about conformity like it's a bad thing, but having people expect us to stay together because we're married is not necessarily bad. Um, So for cohabiting couples, making the decision to marry, um, Scott Stanley um, from the University of Denver likes to talk about um, deciding rather than sliding, that you decide to be in union together rather than sliding into a long-term union because, well, you probably make a better decision if you do it up front than after you have all of these sunk costs from years together and maybe even a child together.
3: Sure, yeah. So, you know, in a lot of these relationships, it seems like maybe the only solution is to either get divorced if you're married or to break up if you're not married, Is there a way that this can be done that can minimize the damage that's done to these children?
8: Um, Again, I'm a little out of my depth there, but it seems like maintaining the relationships with both parents, it does help kids, um, especially um, just being able to gain from from both parents and have them not continuing to fight. Now, of course, that's a little bit idealistic because... Folks that couldn't manage to stay married aren't the best candidates for communicating beautifully and treating each other wonderfully in front of their children. But um, those things are obviously recommended.
3: Is your data—it seems like the data is suggesting that things are going to continue going in the way of cohabitation versus marriage. Is that true?
8: I don't know on that. Um, it does I agree with you. the data does seem to point in that direction. If you look at trend over time, cohabitation, um, especially at some point in people's lives, is becoming increasingly normative, um, so it's certainly going in that direction. It'll be interesting to see how far it goes in that direction. You know how big a minority the folks who direct marry are um, in in future generations.
3: So, just in closing here I'm curious to know what's what's the one thing Dr. Matt always likes to talk about the one thing that we can know today what's the one thing that you wish all parents would know about establishing and and having a stable family
8: um It's great when your kids know that you're crazy about each other
3: <laughs> <laughs> yes
8: um, that the, the the quality of the parental relationship really really does affect kids and they need to know the good stuff um they need they need to have the things that brought you together and the things that keep you together celebrated
3: yeah i think you 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 hit it right on the head there because i i think it is important that we that we go on these date nights together that we make time for our relationship with each other um, I was just on a date recently with my wife. I think it was for Valentine's Day. And I remember trying so hard to be on my best behavior and trying to pull out all of my funny material and just trying to – it was almost like we were dating again. And I remember telling my wife on the way home, I was like, I'm really trying hard to impress you tonight.
8: <laughs> I love that stuff.
3: <laughs> yeah. And I, I I think that is so important. And, again, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier I don't know how, but kids, they tend to pick up on on when things are not all okay between mom and dad. So, yeah, I, I think you, you hit, hit the nail on the head there. You, you need to start with the relationship and make sure that the relationship is strong so that kids can feel like they're safer. They can feel like they're in a more stable home and part of a more stable uh, family unit. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Lori DeRose, thank you so much for your time here on The Matt Townsend Show, and thank you for your insights and your interesting uh, research that you've been doing. Keep up the great work. Uh, her name is Lori DeRose, and she is a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, a research assistant professor at the University of Maryland. And she's been talking to us about the effects of uh, cohabitation on families. When we return, Dr. Matt's going to be doing a little Coach's Corner here on The Matt Townsend Show.
9: coach would have put me in fourth quarter we'd have been state champions
5: because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr
2: matt and his coaching corner
3: welcome back friends
6: you know one of the things um, as i am coaching people with anxiety i have a, a little philosophy or approach that i use that i call i call anxious people ferraris in a world full of chevys okay so it's it's the the person is driving a Ferrari, and some I believe some people, just like a Ferrari, some are just more f- uh, high performance um, as far as their their wiring, their sensitivity to information, their tendency to be anxious. They might you know heat up like a Ferrari. They might uh, spin out a little bit more, and then I. Why I bring it up is that uh, I'm a big believer in a theory about high sensitivity, and we've had her on the show a couple times. Elaine Aaron wrote a book called The Highly Sensitive Person, and she found out that about uh, 20% of the animal kingdom, really, 20% of them are more highly sensitive, meaning they're more prone to pick up uh, stimuli through their senses than the other 80% of the animals, and some of the research shows that these these uh these people this 20% of the population are kind of like the early warning detectors for the rest of us and high sensitives are the the they they probably smells bother them more sounds noise heat other information other stimuli um loud noises bother them the lighting matters to them these are people that spend a lot of time thinking in their heads they they spend a lot of time worrying about what happened and thinking about what might happen happen and i noticed that um the the outcome of that if you're picking up four times more information or stimuli you're probably more likely to feel anxious and um, then i i read elaine aaron's book and i thought holy cow there's the data there's the proof of of what's going on and I, i realized that some people then are just like a ferrari and Ferraris are awesome. Don't I mean, but everyone thinks, "Oh, well, yeah, you're just saying that people with anxiety are just better than the rest of us." No, I'm saying somebody that's a Ferrari, it's a great car, but you don't want a Ferrari climbing a mountain, right? In the dirt and going four-wheeling. Ferraris are awesome when we're on track. And so you'll see a lot of people with anxiety as long as they're in control and on track where they need where they want to be. Life is great, but the minute you take a Ferrari off track, it starts to break down. (laughs) Things start to happen. And so I think that's why, um, to me, it's a really awesome metaphor for dealing with what you would call anxiety or the high sensitivity that causes some of the anxiety. And so this is some examples of things you know um, to help you understand if you're a Ferrari or not. Uh, For example, Ferraris tend to – they overheat pretty quick, right? So if it's getting – if, it's, if, it's, if they're stressed, if they're anxious, if there's a lot of pressure on them, you might see them kind of blow up quickly or you might see them try to disappear and go take a pit stop and stay away from everybody. They tend to hide away. A lot of Ferraris tend to be perfectionists. They tend to worry about the little things. And part of that, I believe, is if you're picking up four times more information or data than everyone around you, then the idea of going for perfection makes sense. Because you know four times more ways to make something perfect. Um, Another idea of uh, Ferraris are simply the idea that if little things become big things, Ferraris, for example, you feel every bump in a Ferrari. You feel every little, you know, every little issue. It's even driving into a driveway. You've got to be careful because if it's too big of a dip, you could bottom out pretty easily. And these are all little signs of people that have a little anxiety. The neat thing about uh, about high sensitivity, if it's what's driving your anxiety, it be just simply because you pick up so much more information, you might want to have more breaks. You might want to take more pit stops. You might want to make sure that you're actually taking some time or even more time to go put fuel and and to fill up your vessel again, right? Because it's not enough to just keep burning the candle. At some point, you have to You you have to put more back into the candle. You have to put more oil back into the lamp instead of just burning it to the end. So think about yourself. Are you an anxious person? Do you tend to want to disappear and and hide away from people? Do you blow up really fast? Does uh, the fact that you haven't had a meal yet make you really hangry? Do Do your medicines work really quickly for you? Are you somebody that when you take a pain med, it works? Are you somebody that when you drink caffeine, it it stimulates? I mean there's some people that could drink all the caffeine in the world and it doesn't seem to affect them. High sensitives are responsive to a lot of these things. And then the natural outcropping or outpouring of too much stimuli is um, – guess what? A little anxiety. So pay attention to it. Um, I've actually been working on writing a book on it, Ferraris in a World Full of Chevys, and also uh, another um, program I put together called Anxious and Engaged, where I know people that aren't even offering their greatest mission and they're they're not offering their greatest gift to the world because they're too anxious about it. And so when we're too anxious, we get disengaged. And I feel like we've got to figure that out. When I disengage what I, from what I'm supposed to be bringing to this world, then I'm not going to feel positive and hopeful in my life, which will probably cause my depression, right? So depression comes from anxiousness, and the anxiousness comes from maybe overstimulation. It's a pretty interesting um, approach and, and philosophy, and uh, we'll be talking a lot more of it on the show because I think it's so critical to each of us to get ahead of this. If you've got it in your family, quit running from it. Let's put you in the driver's seat of your own Ferrari and let's teach you how to drive it. More fun straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend show, helping you be the good in the world.
3: in the program we played part of an interview that Dr. Matt conducted with Heather Johnson who is our adjunct faculty member at BYU and uh, she's one of our family experts and uh, she and Dr. Matt were talking about crafting a family narrative we wanted to play the rest of that interview Dr. Matt asked Heather to tell us how we as parents help our families develop strong bonds
7: As we're doing this, one thing to remember, and then I'd love to talk about what we can do in our own household to start strengthening this narrative. We want to try and focus on not only our own stories that happened to us as children and you know teenagers and all of that, but it's really cool, too, if we can focus on things that happened to our children before they were born, meaning involving family members that they might not have met or that they're uh, not around a lot. Yeah. right. So we want to go bigger than us. This is when great-grandparents come into play sure. and, and aunts and uncles and and these people all kind of rally around again. Just to create this greater body of people to connect us to. I love identity.
6: that. And then, by the way, summer's kind of a great time to do this.
7: Absolutely. Because well,
6: of funerals and reunions and all of these things. Not do more, funerals. Do
7: more people no, die in the summer? I meant like
6: holidays <laughs> where you go celebrate. Like September, we'll have. No, when was it? Weddings. Memorial we Day. We have weddings, mm-hmm. kind of the reunions, all that stuff.
7: Absolutely. It's a great place. And, you know, lots of times we shy away from that, but sit down and listen to, you know, Great Aunt Susie's mm-hmm. story about. Whoever, and, and take that in, you will very quickly start to realize that there are similarities, and that's really cool. That's great. So this narrative, it's bigger than just single answers. For example, I'm always surprised. I ask my students every semester if they know when their parents were married, when their anniversary is. And I would probably say 50% of my class, each classes each semester, can't tell me the day their parents were married.
6: Really? Can't. Yeah,
7: They'll say something like, well, I think it was warm. I think it was in the summer. Or, <laughs> But it's bigger than just being able to say, for example, August 3rd. You want your children to be able to say they were married on August 3rd and the cake showed up late uh-huh. and my dad's tuxedo was blue because it was in the 80s. Right? You want them to yeah. know actually the stories around – the narrative around it, not just the exact things. That's great. So here's some questions for yep. you. Tell me. Do you know where your parents met?
6: Uh, prison. In Prison. <laughs> My my parents met in high school. They lived right up the street from each other.
7: Okay, so you know. How Mm -hmm. about your kids? Do they know how you met?
6: Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Over
7: and over. Because (laughs) we've
6: talked about it. Yeah, they should know. But you know, what's interesting. Like I, my daughter, I could see totally knowing that. Right. some of my kids, my boys, I could be like, I'm pretty sure they don't get it.
7: And there's a difference there. And so that's something as a parent we can take into consideration and think, okay, our daughters, and they usually do pick up on this. I'm just that way. I remember all those things about our family. My parents have had to tell the stories a little bit differently to my brothers because they don't care quite the same.
6: But maybe the right time. Right. Like when one of them is thinking about it you might try to enroll them in
7: sure in the that.
6: engagement idea
7: or for example i know right now i have a brother he's you know grown has a family but he recently has taken up woodworking and hmm. started a woodworking business and he's fantastic it's it's an amazing talent he has and what's really cool is my grandfather w- did the same thing oh that he is was a great. school teacher but and so those stories now he listens to them a lot differently, sure. as my parents sure. tell them. He's now passed away. And so now it fits into his narrative That's different great. than it did yeah. a couple years ago. So let's build this narrative. Those are the type of questions. You know, for example, uh, think back. Do you know maybe some jobs your parents had in high school? Yeah. Could no. you answer that? No. no. Could your kids answer that about you? Yeah. They could answer that about for sure. you. So you can see how you're changing this mm-hmm. as generations go. So if we want to do this in our own home, there's a couple things we want to do. The first thing is we want to have a story for every single situation. I love it. Every single one. So if you want to talk to your kids, teach your kids, it doesn't matter if it's a school situation, a baseball situation, you know, an arts, it doesn't matter. See if there's a story from your past you can use to teach it. I think about our family. My first recollection of learning about being honest comes from a story my dad told me about a Tonka truck. And he was younger. He got it for Christmas. He lost one of the side fences. Oh boy! And he decided that maybe he'd just take one from the store. Yeah,
6: just go get one because more. Because it was I mean, they right got there, there,
7: and all yeah. the trucks had him. And he right. just and it was a couple of hours before you know his parents knew what happened. That's funny. That was lost yesterday. Where is it today? Huh. And. That's honesty. That story's been told great. from him to me, from myself to our kids. He tells it to our kids.
6: Well, that's why you've got a story for everything. Right. And it doesn't always have to be your story. It doesn't. And sometimes it's better if, you know, the stealing story <laughs> might be better to share about grandpa or great grandpa because sure. contextually that it's going to be less of an impact than thinking mom stole
7: right and it's still very real you know it's still happening from someone they love and trust i love that have the relationship Uh, we just had a conversation with our daughter about about being brave about doing something hard and funny enough one of my favorite stories comes from my great-grandfather who i was blessed enough to know through even college he was still alive and when he was 13 he was sent into the mountains to tend sheep in the winter all alone with nothing but a shotgun. Right, <laughs> he killed two bear that winter at thirteen years old. Now, when I talk to our daughter about being brave yeah. at a swim meet, right, compared to killing bear all alone, <laughs> she right. Yeah, she so th- so
6: it's better to tell Grandpa's story right. than like say, "Grow up, you freak."
7: It's exactly right. Yeah. Or this isn't scary; just jump in the water yeah. and swim. Come on, right, right. So we tell those stories, and she goes, "Man." that we're about the same age and that mm-hmm. is being brave i can i can do this I can Well and those genes shot. are in
6: you those are you are that that's you you right. just don't think you can this do that. this is
7: part of you and so these stories have a story that's for cool. everything share it plus it's more memorable it's not harping yeah. on them it's not preaching what to them What if the kids
6: are like oh mom no more stories
7: then you say you know what i got to hear these stories when i was young and yeah. you get to hear them too pass those potatoes and let's keep talking you and go. you just that's roll it. right yeah. through it right you don't and you'll know and sense how to deliver Mm -hmm. because you know your children. That's cool. But that's the first thing. Have a story for everything. The next one is that we're going to teach our children to tell their own autobiography. Now, it's really important that children learn how to talk about past events. It's almost like a gift that comes from practice. It doesn't naturally come to everyone. So we want them to be able to tell their own story so that they can then better understand everyone else's stories when they hear it. One of the best ways to do this is when you're together, even once a day if you can, maybe it's around the dinner table, ask your child to describe a past memorable event in their own lives. Maybe they won the spelling bee Mm -hmm. in third grade and now they're in fifth and they still remember that. Or maybe they remember when they were three and they, I don't know, hit a home run in Little League, whatever it might be. Ask them to tell those stories. Once they've worked through the event itself, ask the five questions of who, what, where, when, and why. That's cool. It's that simple.
3: Well, our coach may not be here, but we're still going to continue doing our Coach's Corners here on the Matt Townsend Show And we're also going to continue doing something that uh, we do on a daily basis. It's one of Matt's favorite parts of the show. And that, of course, is the MT News. And this is kind of a bizarre one. I mean, we hear lots of stories about people running away from the police. And we even have a PSA on how to elude the police. Not that we're saying that you should Run away from the police if you've done something wrong. And it's just something we we dug up and found in the archives. But uh, there's a Florida man who was taken to a hospital after trying to escape deputies by jumping into a lake. Okay, now that's not the weird part. Listen to everything that leads up to that. According to the sheriff's office, the suspect attempted to steal a car. Then he took off on foot again. That's stuff we've heard before. Nothing too abnormal about that. So far,
4: that's pretty normal.
3: During a foot pursuit, the suspect picked up a bicycle. You're thinking, okay, he's going to get on the bicycle and try to outrun the police that way if they're on this foot pursuit, right? Right. No, no, no. Picked up the bicycle and threw it (laughs) at a deputy.
4: Maybe he didn't know how to use it.
3: Okay, maybe, yeah, he's like, I'm not sure what to do with this, but it looks like it could hurt.
4: Once you learn a bike, you never forget. Maybe somebody taught him wrong.
3: That's true. Maybe that's how his dad taught him to ride a bike. Deputies say the man then jumped into Lake Holden to hide from deputies. A helicopter was used to spot the suspect's location in the large lake. He was pulled from the water and handcuffed. So they got him after that, that big ordeal. But then... They had him in the boat. They had him handcuffed. There's more. And he jumped back into the water.
4: What? With handcuffs? That's bold. I don't I mean, <laughs> I consider myself a strong swimmer, but not that strong.
3: I'm not sure what type of maneuvering you're going to be able to do handcuffed. Yeah. Anyway, uh just one more quick one here before we go to break. Two men from the same town with 102 license suspensions between them. Were arrested in separate cases in the same Long Island County within 24 hours, authorities say. In the first case, cops say uh, Rigoberto Campus, who has 26 suspension, uh, 26 suspensions on his license, hit a 77-year-old woman's car around 7 p.m. Sunday. So if we're talking 102 license suspensions, and he's only got 26. He's he's kind of the rookie of the two guys. You know, he's beginning. Let's give him a chance. So I'm sure he can get those numbers back up. Um, he ran into the woods after the accident and remained at large for a number of hours before he was taken into custody early Monday. Later Monday, shortly afternoon, cops say 41-year-old Daryl McDonald was pulled over for an expired in- inspection sticker. A routine DMV check revealed he was driving with a license that had been suspended 76 times on 15 different dates. Ooh. So, Daryl McDonald, Donald, you are the champion of the two. You know, you could probably give this other guy some pointers, tell him how he can get that number. No, you don't want to do that. Both were charged with aggravated, unlicensed operation of a motor vehicle and other charges.
4: I think the question, though, is were their licenses revoked?
3: Mm, good question. Another question does this uh, get them in the Guinness Book of World Records for most number of license suspensions? I'm guessing no. Unfortunately, I'm guessing that there are people with far more license suspensions there. Anyway, folks, you want to be smart. You don't want to get your license suspended. and You don't want to run away from the police. When we return, we're going to continue the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. We're also coming up next with uh, BBC News.
1: This is The Matt Townsend Show.
2: Your guide on the side.
1: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
2: At Dr. Matt Show.
1: Call the show at 1 855
7: Chat BYU.
2: This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr.
7: Matt Townsend. Now. On BYU Radio.
2: BYU Radio.
3: Good morning. Welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson once again filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away in beautiful St. George. If you've never been there, uh, you probably would pass through it if you happen to be going on I-15, headed down to California, or headed somewhere else, wherever the I-15 leads to. (laughs) But uh, check it out. You'll at least want to stop there for lunch sometime throughout your life. Everybody goes through St. George eventually, right?
4: Right. Isn't the weather (laughs) a lot warmer down there? I
3: don't know because I am always just getting out of my car and getting gas and jumping right back in. Anyway, he'll be back soon and we're gonna be uh we're gonna be doing some of his coaching uh during the show, some of his coaches corners And we're also going to be replaying an interview that he conducted with Sandra Russ about kids needing to play outside. And it is so true because with all these devices and streaming shows, it can be tough to get these kids outside sometimes. And yet when you're out there, it's so much fun. And I think this thought goes through their head of, man, I forgot how great this was. And I I look at them and I think, man, you kids don't know what you're missing. We had so much fun outside growing up. We'd play all sorts of games, basketball games. I mean, we were bored, so you had to get outside and do stuff, right? We didn't have... I'm going to stop talking because it sounds like I'm on a when I was your age soapbox. And I'm really not that old, right? Is 35 old?
4: No. No, that's not too old.
3: Thank you. Because when I say it out loud, it sounds old. Hey, by the way, I wanted to do another quick MT News story here. We we like to uh, kind of coach the crooks. You know, we learned what not to do earlier when you're running from the, from the police. Maybe don't jump into the lake. Maybe don't get your license suspended.
4: 76 times.
3: But also remember to wear your gloves if you're going to rob somebody. First of all, don't rob somebody. Deputies uh, in a, a Florida sheriff's office say Jason Braun had gloves on when he allegedly broke into a home, but he put them on a little too late, they say. Before he busted through a back window, deputies say he pushed the doorbell with his bare hands. Wah, wah. An 81-year-old man inside the home grabbed his gun and fired several shots at Braun. Deputies say Braun ran away. When deputies showed up, they swabbed the doorbell and sent it to a crime lab. Deputies say Braun's DNA was all over the doorbell. As it turns out, when investigators connected the dots, Braun was already locked up for a similar crime in the county jail. So he was incredibly easy to catch because they already got him.
4: Wow. So wait, so he rang the doorbell. Before robbing the house where there was someone inside.
3: And then he put his gloves on.
4: And then he put the gloves on.
3: You ring the doorbell to see if anybody's there because you don't want to encounter anybody at home. Right. Because they might have a gun like they did in this case. Anyway, just think before you rob. But more importantly, don't rob. Okay. That's the highlight of the story here. Terry South is here. He's going to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up?
5: On Tuesday, the Trump administration unveiled a 25% tariff on $50 billion worth of Chinese goods from lithium batteries to flamethrowers. And a few hours later, China hit back, saying that if Trump imposes the tariffs after May 11th public comment period ends, China will slap 25% tariffs on a list of 106 U.S. products, including soybeans, airplanes, and automobiles. The speed of the retaliatory tariff surprised analysts and the inclusion of soybeans, the top US agricultural export to China, underscored the seriousness of which China is taking Trump's trade moves. This is the second round of trade war warnings between the Trump administration and China. On Monday China announced 3 billion worth of import duties on US fruit pork, wine, and other goods to match Trump's 25% tariff on steel and 15% tariff on aluminum. Hmm. I think that covers the entire history so far in the last week of tariffs.
3: Yes, yes, it does. So
5: things might get a little expensive here in the next few months. Oh boy! Until everyone you know starts playing nice. Uh, Facebook announced on Tuesday it will it was removing dozens of accounts and pages that were run by the Russian-based internet research agency, a troll farm that impersonated Americans on the social media platform to exacerbate political divisions ahead of the 2016 election. Seventy Facebook accounts, 138 Facebook pages, and 65 Instagram accounts were, were removed. The company said, in addition to the ads that those pages ran the uh the internet research agency has repeatedly used complex networks of inauthentic accounts to deceive and manipulate people who use facebook including before during and after the 2016 elections uh, said a facebook chief security officer so
3: people there. online that are lying to us yeah who can we trust if we can't trust people online strangers online
5: yeah exactly. I don't know. We'll see where this goes. The Department of Homeland Security has acknowledged in a private letter to Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon that it has detected the use of special devices to intercept intercepts, uh, phone calls and messages in the Washington, D.C. area, likely by foreign spies. (gasps) This is out of the Associated Press yesterday. Really? The device, which can cost as little as $1,000 and be as small as a cell phone, works by tricking victims' mobile devices into thinking they are connecting to a cell phone tower. Hmm. But but it says more sophisticated versions can eavesdrop on calls by forcing phones to step down to older encrypted 2G wireless technology, the AP writes. What? Some uh, Some attempts to plant malware... That's what you can you can put right. programs on phones. The use of these devices known as uh, stingrays is common in capital cities all over the world as well as in America. Police departments use this in certain areas. Uh, every embassy, as it says, worth their salt has such a tower, claimed the president of the mobile security consultancy... Uh, intracell so guy named Aaron term he's an expert uh, because foreign <laughs> embassies operate on, on sovereign soil it is extremely difficult for police to use such a device by foreign nationals or to stop the use the uh, Department of Homeland Security acknowledges the devices presence in DC is a first as well as a potential uh, potentially the admission of a national security threat due to the member na- numbers of people who work in the military NSA CIA and FBI that work in and around Washington so the boxes is they collect all the data from the phones. Yeah. And embassies will put them, say, on the roof, and they, they'll cover like a 1,000-foot area around the building, so when anyone approaches the embassy, it'll collect the data from that phone. I'm pretty sure James Bond has already had this technology for years. Sure. The FBI uses it in, uh, allegedly, in uh, <laughs> like uh, Cessna aircraft, small airplanes, Uh-huh. and they'll just fly around uh, demonstrations, protests. Oh, and they, wow. And they have that out so they can just track what's going on. They look, at me- they look at text messages and phone calls and phone numbers and see if people connect to known people. So if you're going to a rally, leave your phone at home. Yeah, maybe just turn it off. But yeah. everyone wants to tweet and be connected sure. that way too. So, But, yeah, it's just interesting. The, the technology that exists and you don't even know it, you just walk into an area and instantly they have your information from your phone. Ah, that's the problem. And mm. especially if it's like, you know, dealing with secrets and the government and all that. So yep. so summer is uh, soon upon us, here in a few months, with the dangers of tanning beds and the messiness of bronzers. I know you deal with that, Jeff, if you're <laughs> using your bronzing cream. Wrong. There has got to be a better way to get a tan when you can't lay in the sun, and now there is. It's aptly called Tan Gummies. What? And they're being dubbed the world's first edible tanning supplement. The, okay. Yeah. Well- the, the
3: first real big question here is, yep. do they come in the Flintstones form? that
5: would be vitamins. You want them like gummy bears, don't you? Yeah, I guess so. Okay. So the Chewy Candies promise to accelerate and enhance the perfect bronze tone to pale skin without any, any exposure to the sun. You mm. get 60 gummies per container, and it's recommended that you take them for three weeks to get the color you want. You know, another good way to do
3: this that's natural... You just eat carrots constantly.
5: Well, no, that's probably not the best way.
3: I, I saved my wife from having, uh, oh gosh, what is the name of it? The the discoloration of the skin that you get from eating too many carrots. When we were dating, she was eating them on a daily basis, and her hands were turning orange. Yeah. I put a stop to that.
5: So this is a way to get a tan by eating the gummies. Hmm. I'm not sure what chemicals go into turning your skin a different color so that, you know what I mean? I was going to say, that's safer? That's
0: better for you?
5: So they're raspberry flavored. Uh, They're calling them treats here, but it's not really a (laughs) treat, what it's doing to you. But it's only available in the UK. Of
3: course. At least for now. You know, speaking of the UK, I heard that uh, Willy Wonka has a gum that if you chew it, it's not only a full course meal, but it will change the hue of your skin. A delightful violet color you know there are there are some side effects that come with it you might you might blow up the size of a blueberry or the shape of a blueberry but you know you kind of have to pick your battles
4: if you get the tan you're looking for right that's
3: i i for one you know don't want that orange tan look i i I think i might want to go for a bluer look and uh you know i'm already kind of bloated so there's that. Wow. <laughs> You're learning all sorts of things about me today. I am. Anyway. And we all are. <laughs> and uh, that's a, I, I don't want to make that transition, so I'll cut myself off there. But uh, coming up next on the Matt Townsend Show, we're going to be revisiting an interview with Sandra Russ about kids needing to play outside. They need to do it. And she'll tell you why when we return. you ever stood in the doorway and just watched your child play out a story? Whether they're playing with puppets or Barbies or action figures, it, it can be quite entertaining. But kids don't just play, uh, they don't just play pretend to keep their mind off of adult things. It's actually a vital part of their development. Watching your kids play can give you a lot of insight on your kids' mind. Dr. Sandra Russ is a professor at Louis D. Beaumont University in the Department of Psychological Sciences, and she joined us a few months back uh, to teach us the importance of imaginative play and how we can foster it for our children. Dr. Matt started the interview by asking her what is going on in the mind of a child when they are on the floor playing.
10: So what they're really doing Starting at about two, two and a half, is making things up. Right? They're they're using their imagination. They're they're making up stories. They're using objects to be different things. So using a block to be uh, a building or a telephone. I mean, that's really beginning to use symbolism to hmm. to treat something as if it's something else. So they're they're learning to tell a story. They're learning to have things pretend to be other things. And they're they're role-playing as well. So they're taking on the views of other characters. Uh, so they're really doing a lot at this age and developing their imagination and learning to make things up from scratch, which is so important yeah. in later creativity.
6: So, so they're really, this is where they learn to, to kind of Take the place of others, see, see um, the world from another frame of reference or another exactly. view.
10: Exactly.
2: That's and, powerful.
10: And also they're, they're just th- the joy of making things up and, and making things. I mean, if you really watch children play, most children really enjoy it, right? I mean they're, right. They're engaged and um, having fun. And in that sense, I mean it's really interesting. I think children are wired in some ways to play because kids in every society do it, all cultures, but also it's self-reinforcing. It feels good, and so they want to play more because it's a, a positive mood that, that they're experiencing and that they're engaged in. So just that joy of you know making things up by themselves can carry over also.
6: So the joy is Maybe. creativity. The joy is exactly. this this essence of being a kind of a creator in their world. I guess it gives them power.
8: Right? And and right. and
6: then they can I mean I, they can also jump around and probably I guess learn where wherever they're ready to learn.
10: That's right. And the the idea of jumping around, I mean their whole body is in it, right? Yeah. I mean it's it's all of them. So play really does involve the whole child and for young kids especially that you know motor development and and action is also involved in, in in brain development as well and so i think what is happening although we don't have any evidence for it really yet is that um neurologically play is helping them it's helping develop cognitive flexibility and areas of the brain important in creativity but we don't know that yet because hmm. we haven't really looked.
6: <laughs> yeah, I guess we're just probably just barely understanding the beginning of what's happening here.
10: That's, that's right, in, in the brain, exactly. Yeah. But we do know from lots of studies that children who engage in play and use their imagination in play are more creative in other, on other tasks. Hmm. And that's really important because, you know, if we can see a child with good imagination in play – they probably are imaginative and creative in telling stories and in generating ideas on other on other tasks. So is we it, can see that in play.
6: Is it also... Talk about what's happening to their emotional development. Maybe some of that is the neurological or the cognitive flexibility you were talking about. What's happening to them as they engage emotion into the play?
10: So that's a really important question because... Um, Children are expressing a lot of emotion in play, and if you just watch them. I mean, they're, 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 having, they're making up stories about having fun, or they're making up sad stories, or they're making up stories about being chased by monsters. And they're, in some ways, acting out their fears and concerns and learning how to deal with it. So play is helping them process emotions. Hmm. Therapists have used play for years to help children deal with difficult stresses in their lives. And, and children naturally do this. They, they play things out. If they're worried about going to the doctor or having to go into the hospital, often they play it out hmm. and play doctor and play yeah. um, being in the hospital. I mean, they're, they're trying to learn to deal with the negative things in their lives. As well as um, you know having having fun in the play, mm-hmm. but I think play is helping kids process emotions and get comfortable with emotions, boy, and yeah, get comfortable with thinking about um, emotional issues
6: and I guess even practice it right i mean they 're practicing the emotion they 're because pra- exactly. if they 're role playing you know, oh, no way the doggy died, right, um, right, they, right, they're feeling the emotion. They go through even a, a process of acting it out.
10: Right, They right. And, and so it's kind of simulated emotion. Yeah, right. Um, yes. And, and so practice is really an important word in thinking about play because children are practicing um, uh, emotional issues or, you know, kind of, um, having different ideas about things, uh, different ideas about people, practice is is really what's going on. So they're not wasting their time. Right. You know, this is a really important uh, message, I think, for parents and teachers. Kids are not wasting their time when they're playing. They're really doing something that's important in child development. They're learning. We need to let them do it.
6: Yeah. Do... Um, do... I mean, I guess, too, there's probably a correlation to they're becoming more empathic.
10: Yes. Uh, we have done some studies that have shown, that have found that kids who express, uh, who are more imaginative, also score higher on empathy measures or are more pro-social in mm. the classroom. So we do have some studies that show that. Um, it, it gets into theory of mind issues, but yes, they can take the perspective of the other and, and, and can understand the other hmm. better.
6: Is there, yeah. is, is there a certain age um, where they, they kind of grow out of playing, and, or is there a certain range of, of years that you're, you're more likely to see them doing some of this role-playing until they move out of role-playing and move into something else?
10: Right, about three to eight, three years of age to eight or nine. It depends on the child. And then uh, it, this kind of active play in childhood changes, and it it evolves, Piaget thought and others thought, into more fantasy, internal fantasy. Mm. And so the 11- the and 12-year-old is just not playing the same way. that. Mm-hmm. They did at seven. I mean, then other things take over, right? Sports and board games and and other kinds of play, but not pretend play. But it can develop into uh, writing stories or art or other more creative activities for the 12, 13,
6: 14-year-old. <laughs> In fact, um, I, I remember getting to that age where it wasn't part of me still would have wanted to be playing with my Toys ah, and yes. part of me knew it's time to probably move on because others yes. don't like that.
10: That's right. That is right. Mm. Although, that's right. <laughs>
6: that's kind of sad, isn't it?
10: Yes, it is sad. It is sad. But development developmentally. It is what happens, and it's natural. And
6: Talk about, um, I mean, it's a, this is this is your child going through these stages in, of development, but you're also, you get to witness how they see the world, their fears, their concerns, their personality. Isn't that what's coming out in play?
10: It is. It is. And their imagination.
6: Yeah. And
10: it's really important, I, I think it depends on the child's age as to how the parent, is involved so for young children two three four those children really want you to play with them right So it's important for parents to sit down with them or sit down on the floor or wherever they are and really engage with them in in their play be in the tea party you know help 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 them make dinner on their play stove mm-hmm. um but it's important too that that the parent you follow their lead so you don't take over the story.
6: Don't tell them how to set the table.
10: Exactly. Exactly. Or that, you know, that soup has to be at, you know, really (laughs) hot. I mean, you know, follow their lead. Um, For older kids, five, six, seven, they kind of want to be on their own more. And so don't intrude. You know, just kind of give, but as long as they have the time and the space, they need a space uh, where they can also play, and toys.
6: Yes, and, and I guess get them the appropriate toys as well, Absolutely. right?
10: Absolutely, right. I mean, unstructured, uh, blocks are great, clay, Play-Doh, mm. action figures, dolls, I mean, things that... Need a story. Yes, that need a story, that don't tell them how to do the story.
6: Um, what do you think about what's happening with technology and some of these other things that might be delivering the story,
10: so I think um, as some of that's okay, yeah. you know, but uh, as long as there's an ideally the child would be able to participate actively in making up the story that they wouldn't just be following along so that their mind is active and mm-hmm. engaged, so i that's one thing I would be looking for. Uh, as a parent, um, is the video game? Is there room for the child to really make things up as well? Um, we we did a study uh, where we looked at children's play, going back from the mid from about eight, uh, 1983 or so to 2008. So we had about a about a 20 year period, and we had different play samples from children over this period of time. And we pretend play, you know, working with puppets and blocks, and yeah. and we we found actually an increase in imagination over that period of time. Hmm. Uh, and so their play was not getting worse. We we wondered about that given computers and video, and video games technology, but it did not get worse. In fact, the imagination got a little better. Wow! So I think that's an important message, also, you know, for our culture. Uh, all of this technology is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it can be helping in a lot of ways. But for the parent of a young child, I'd, I'd want to make sure the child had enough playtime with just normal toys <laughs> as yeah. well. Yeah. And also that the technology would leave room for them to to make up
6: stories. Do, ch- do children, uh, if you put uh, two children in a room, maybe three <laughs> or four-year-olds, um, mm-hmm. and gave them enough, you know, like little fake kitchens or, you yeah. know, ch- child kitchens or whatever, would they yeah. Would they naturally, would do all children naturally start to play? Or are no. some just more reticent, not interested? It's so, some are, uh,
10: some children have trouble using their imagination. So, you know, if you're talking about a group like that, maybe some kids are just shy. They have a good imagination, but they can't let it out. With, with other kids who mm-hmm. maybe have stronger personalities. So that's one thing. But there are children who just have trouble using their imagination. And we have been working to develop uh, programs to help these children develop more imagination. And we have found in a couple of studies that with a little bit of play guidance, uh, they can improve their imagination on other, on other tasks and what we what we find most helpful in and when we play with these children is that if we model pretending hmm. if we if we take the the lego and have it make it into a milk bottle because the you know the bear needs milk if we model like that the child catches on and they're able i mean it is kind of like teaching them Uh, To pretend. Yeah. But modeling, modeling is really helpful. And that's something that parents and teachers can easily do with children who might have trouble uh, using their imagination.
6: Mm. And because you could see that they might be able to, you know, function in society, be healthy in society. But if they lack some imagination and some creativity, it might impact their coping down the road. It might impact relationships, social skills.
10: Exactly, and and we do know that children who use their imagination better are able to cope better uh, with life's stressors because they can think of more things to do mm. yeah. when when tough things happen. So um, so yes, it is to the. I mean, I see play as a huge resource for children, and it's like giving them another tool.
0: Yeah, I
6: love it.
10: Help them, uh, and so I. We haven't talked about schools.
6: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Are schools Uh, helping in this? Are they hurting?
10: Well, you know, playtime is being eliminated. Right. recess is being eliminated. And the teachers I talk to are really upset about that. And they know that play is important for young children, and yet it gets squeezed out. So we need to get play back into the preschools and into kindergarten and even time for play in early elementary grade,
6: mm. yeah, I mean recess. But but two, yeah. I guess you because to me, um, play for children is learning. It's developmental, so it you could it include is. it in as a as a, as one of the classes we're going to work Ab- on.
10: Absolutely, and there's a whole you know literature out there on on play based learning uh, for the classroom, which is a little different than what I've been talking about. But that you know yeah. using play to teach things because it's so natural for kids. And it's how they learn, and they take to it easily. Yeah,
6: yeah. we have about thirty seconds, um, okay. Doctor Russ. Tell me what's what's one thing that parents can do, maybe even this weekend, the holiday season, with our kids that that you know these younger children, I guess that that could make a difference in their play. Uh,
10: play with them. Bring out some boxes and Legos or blocks, and and have them make something and make up a story. Mm.
6: And ask them make up the story and
10: make up a story. And if they can't get started, say to them, "Well, let's make a story about going to a birthday party. Yeah. I'll be Joe, you be Mary. That's <laughs> and, great. And get it started,
6: right? And easy, right?
10: And easy, yes. And it doesn't take a lot of time.
6: And you'll you'll learn a lot about your kids.
10: Absolutely, and the, and it'll it'll help your relationship.
6: And if there's a teenager in the back seat, tell them to be quiet.
10: Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> they can help. <laughs>
6: they're going to make fun of your other kids.
10: Yeah, tell That's them great. that they did
6: it when they were little. That's right. Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Sandra Russ, thank you for your great work. Uh, you can go find out uh, more about her work um, just looking her up on at Case Western University. But also she has a recent book out, Pretend Play in Childhood, Foundation of Adult Creativity. Remember, child is father to the man. And uh, we, how we teach creativity, imagination, how we kind of spark that a little bit. Letting them make up stories, letting them play, it will determine uh, a lot. Not determine, but it will impact a lot of how they move forward through life. Powerful stuff, folks. Helping you see the good in the world. We will take a, rake, a break, come back, visit our good guys, our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us.
9: coach would have put me in fourth
5: quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner.
6: Play ball. Welcome back, friends. Man, unbelievable. Um, think of it. Just the, the crazy dynamics that happen as we start to pick up trends in our lives, like this idea of getting our children into competitive leagues, and that creates more competition. Then all of a sudden we have younger and younger girls competing at, you know, very high levels of competition and then we hear more and more stories about mean girls and uh this competitive nature and so is and then you can hear people saying oh you're just trying to hold the women back but then you hear about the hashtag me too moment right and we've got to figure out a way to create a voice and and to give our kids um some skills some tools to to make it through this this world we live in we also have to be careful about the little changes we make. I mean, a little change over a long period of time goes a very, very long way. And so, and because we we don't see an immediate cause effect because we institute a change like putting them in competitive soccer, we may not, and you know, over-scheduling them, and then, you know, the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Over time, we then start to realize we have this epidemic of anxious children we have this epidemic of supposedly mean girls or aggressive boys that uh, you know are, are doing you know hurtful and harmful things. So a few little tools, but I think in the end would help boys just as well. But I wrote uh, these ideas down for um, more for young girls and and just our children, our daughters that we're raising. One might be a really important thing that we could all do to to be a, a more effective parent is share our vision of who our daughter really is. And it might be valuable that we share with them this idea of, the, of who their identity is. Remember, they're going to pick up their identity from someone, and it might be really important, I think, that it comes from you, mom and dad. So share with them that, that their value and their potential uh, is, is of infinite worth, and that it's not going to change, and it's not based on what they do. It already exists in them share the fact that their potential really is unchangeable and that your love for them is unchangeable. Another tool is make your example speak louder than your words. Don't just tell them to do stuff. Model it. Uh, Moms, you need to model what what a healthy person with a healthy voice, how that works. Uh, Model what hard work looks like. Model uh, what education and reading and and you know true spiritual growth and development looks like get out there as parents and model it for your kids instead of just hoping that you can talk them into doing what needs to be done another word another thing we can do is affirm what they're doing well every chance that you can. Affirm it. When you see that they're doing something great, talk about it. Bring it up. Focus more on the positive with them than the negative. So many times our kids hear so many negative things from us about them that they start to take in that as as kind of more of their identity. But if we could overwhelm them with, you did it again, that was so great, you really looked good at this, you made this happen, excellent job on your homework, way to work so hard. Remember, too, to focus all of that, not just on traits, but on true uh, character strengths. So when you see them working hard, would be a better thing to focus on than looking good, right? Or um, instead of just being super athletic, which is something they didn't necessarily earn, they just were born with, focus instead on their work ethic, on their dedication, on their caring about others and their helping and serving the other people on the team. That will go a long way. Another rule that I think all of us could do is just respect the thoughts and the ideas of our children more. Actually listen to what they're saying more. Pay attention to what they're saying. Be influenced by what they're saying. If your children have you know, and promote a really an an idea, listen to the idea. And if if we're talking about where we're going to dinner, hey, let them choose. Uh, I had some clients in my office just the other day, and we were talking about at some point, you've got to put your child in the driver's seat and let them drive their own life. And especially with strong kids that are constantly demanding to drive their own life, let's start letting them do it. You don't want to let them, you don't want to abandon them. But you can start letting them make little decisions right now in their life, and it'll go a long way for many. Also, tell and reinforce the fact that you love your child no matter what. There's nothing they're going to do that would make you love them less. And if you could, too, I'm a big believer, and I know it's hard, and I know sometimes it's just conditional based on how you were raised. But verbalize that love more. Share it more. Say, I love you more. Look them in the eye and say, I love you more and validate the fact that the love is going to be here no matter what. Behaviors come and go, and we may not always be pleased with everything that happens, but I'll love you no matter what. Once they know that they're loved, then they're probably going to feel safer to come back and to make changes. Also, there is a point to parents where you're going to have to quit getting your identity from your children. And the sooner you learn that, the better off for everybody, really, I think, in the end, because it can't just be about you gaining more and more psychic income off of your kids going, you know, winning that game, becoming the cheerleader, being in the dance team. At some point, it's got to be theirs. It's got to be their win. So defer all of that high, all of that light, all of the accolades to them. It's theirs. Because the sooner you put the onus back on them that this is their victory, then, two, it will also be in a couple of weeks their defeat, right, when they struggle and they don't always have the successes. So the more that they can feel both sides of that, the more they understand how there is a give and take in life. Anyway, basic stuff, right? Basic, but it's not always uh, – it's common sense, not always commonly practiced, and that's what our goal on the show is, is to do whatever we can to help you make practice of some of these more basic principles of life. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
3: Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. It's that time of the show and we head over to BYU Sports Nation to see what's coming up on their program here in just about 10 minutes. And today it's Spencer and Jerem. How
9: are you guys? We're great, Jeff. Baseball is back. How are your Dodgers doing, man?
3: I haven't been following too closely because I made a pact with myself that I was not going to allow them to uh, break my heart again this year.
9: Oh man! So, so I'll, a, I would love, love to be a in your shoes. I would love to be in your shoes and be playing for a World Series. We lost Game
0: Seven. The Orioles haven't played it.
9: for a World Series since 1993.
2: Mariners haven't yeah. played in a World Series.
9: <laughs> Boo hoo! It? It's gonna be
2: okay, dude. It's April. I know. There's
3: there's still plenty of time. They have it. They're they're trying to figure out how to gel again. But I, I'm curious to know about a team that does seem to be gelling pretty well. The Utah Jazz is—is is this they're tied for fourth in the playoffs? Is that yes. true? Yes. For
9: a second, I thought you were going to say the Utah Utes, and I was going to be like, "We're done. We're never doing another interview." The Utah again Warriors, with you. Me. get out of here! Get out of here! So, so, yes, the Utah Jazz in the fourth <laughs> seed. All Utah, yes. of a sudden,
2: I was at the game last night. It's fun to watch uh, Ricky Rubio go for thirty-one. Donovan probably going to be second in the rookie of the year voting. Mitchell oh. To Ben Simmons, although I think Donovan. It's right there. Uh, yeah, they're a fun team to watch, right? The so, West is shaping up to be a really fun uh, playoff. Do they year. have a chance? Because
3: the last time, in my Who mind, the asked? last time that I remember the Jazz being really, really good is when they were in the uh, the playoffs with the Bulls, and that was exciting to watch.
9: Literally. Do they have years, a chance yeah. to win a playoff oh, yeah, series? What's your, what's your yes. question?
2: Okay, right now the Jazz are in the fourth spot. They could, I mean, depending on how things shake out, they could... Like, fall out of the playoffs. Four through, four through nine right now decided by two games. Ooh. Which Ooh. is incredible.
9: It would, take, it would take quite the epic fail in the Jazz last four games for them to fall out of the playoff race entirely. Right.
2: I'm just saying it's possible. What it There's is possible. There's a two-game uh, separation here.
9: They could be the eight seed.
2: They could, they could be, be, the be the four, four. Isn't it fun to speculate? It's more fun to speculate than talk about results. Because <laughs> yes. everything's wide open. Everything, yeah. like, I enjoy preseason more than the actual season.
9: Now, technically speaking, Jerem, the Trailblazers lost to the Mavericks last night. They could, so the, the Jazz seed, could climb as high as right, the three seed if right. all the cards fall How right. How many
2: games are left? Four for a lot of teams? I, yes. Yeah, probably not. Happen. But uh, if the Jazz hosted a, had home court for a first-round series... They could win it! The year after losing quite possibly the most sought-after free agent and all the drama that came with Gordon Hayward... That would be an incredible uh, thing because they added Ricky Rubio and they added Donovan Mitchell, and that's basically Look, it. the Jazz
9: have won in New Orleans and in Minnesota and in San Antonio against other playoff teams who they could potentially match up with. Yeah, so that's
2: a fun local story. So that's
3: going on in Salt Lake. But what's going on in Utah County here in Provo on your show that's coming up in about eight
2: minutes? I thought you were asking just in Utah County. I was like, well, a whole lot of essential oils. Uh, <laughs> yes. Adobe. People lined Qualtrics, up at
3: Swig. Ribbon.
9: Yeah, yeah. It's the Silicon Slopes.
2: Silicon <laughs> Slopes, where the slopes are silicony.
9: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Grandpa Remus. Uh. Yeah, well, it, well, the old man from Orem. How do you get in here? <laughs> uh, we're going with the super light question today, Jeff. Which and, is, and that is, uh, if BYU doesn't get a Power Five invite, would you they do? Would you rather stay independent or go back to a group of five? Ooh. So heavy handed for sure.
2: Yes. UAE's best offensive player from last year was tied in Matt Bushman. What do he and Moses have in common? We will discuss.
9: <laughs> hmm. And uh, by Moses, I don't mean Moses, Chris Martin,
2: lead singer of Cold Place. Oh, Moses and
3: you said Bushman. Matt Bushman. Matt Bushman. So Moses spoke to a burning bush.
2: <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. Quite possibly. You Your have aunt- to watch.
9: You're, uh, you're on onto to something, something onto there, something. Jeff. Did you're I give a, it you're away? A smart one. I
2: gave it away. I'm you're sorry. A smart one, you probably got a thirty plus ACT.
9: And the most impressive scoring play in the history of BYU athletics on the heels of one of the most impressive goals we have ever seen on a world stage from Cristiano Ronaldo.
2: And we have an Olympian on the show. Really? Yep, that's two weeks in a row. An Olympian on the show. By the way, I
3: just watched a movie, and there was a portrayal of Moses, and apparently there were originally supposed to be fifteen commandments, but uh,
2: oh, you watched one uh, of the t- <laughs> what history of the world?
3: <laughs> one of the tablets was dropped. and yes. so now it's ten.
2: I now bring you the fifteen <laughs> commandments, <laughs> the ten commandments. <laughs>
3: Well, That's it sounds funny. like a great show, and I, I'm curious to know what the the Bushman Moses connection is. Yeah. And I'm sure you're going to tell us here in about six minutes. We think it's a good one. Thank you, Jeff. Okay, thanks, well, have, Jeff. Have a great show. We'll Word talk up, again. Man. Okay. Wow. Well, it sounds like a, an amazing show, and once again, they all they did was tease. They didn't give us any information. It's a little selfish.
4: But, but that I guess... 15 commandments thing was interesting. Like they still had a problem back then of dropping tablets. I mean, that's a modern, relatable thing.
3: That is true. That is a great point. Um, <laughs> wow. Interesting. Okay. Well, as you know, what we like to do at the end of every show is we like to end the show with our hero story of the day. And this is another great one. A typical evening commute on the subway turned into anything but when a passenger was found slumped over and unconscious. A New York subway conductor stepped in to save the man's life. Conductor Kevin Barch was working two train cars away when the 35-year-old passenger went into cardiac arrest shortly before 6.30 p.m. Wednesday on the F-train. He leapt into action. As the subway pulled into the Roosevelt Avenue 74th Street station, he heard passengers yelling that a man was in distress, screaming, he's dead, he's dead. I got a couple passengers to help me get this passenger down to the floor, he said. Barsh, who happens to be a volunteer firefighter, started chest compressions and called for help. A nearby EMT rushed to the platform, took over the compressions, and was about to use a defibrillator. I applied the mask first. And uh, as I was applying the pads, the patient just rose up, said EMT Christian Wynn. Wynn was stationed near the platform as part of a city program that started last August to put EMTs in more than a dozen subway stations. The goal is to get sick riders' help faster and also to keep trains moving when there's an isolated emergency. One passenger told uh, Dudridge she was inspired to see how quickly everyone reacted to save the man's life. That New Yorkers, oh, that New Yorkers would step in and assist in any way they could. And this subway conductor just happened to be trained in CPR. Passenger Amy Harris said. Twenty minutes later, the man was up and walking. He was taken to Elmhurst Hospital, and uh, Barsh got back on the train and went right back to work. That's what a hero does. Aside from saving lives and helping people, they get right back to work. You often hear about people winning the lottery and deciding, you know what? I'm never going to work again. But no, you got you to gotta get back in there and, and keep going at it. And uh, so, yeah, this subway conductor, Kevin Barsh, is our hero of the day. That's going to do it for the Matt Townsend Show today. We're going to be back tomorrow giving you more insight, more information to help you lead healthier, happier lives. I'm starting to sound more and more like Matt Townsend each and every day. Not just my voice, but in the things that I say. Anyway, that's going to do it for the show. BYU Sports Nation is up next.